Moms, we're so thankful for this day that we can honor you and bless you. And we're going to do that uh, very shortly, as soon as we get to the end of this message. We'll be praying for you. It's a very special day. It always seems to remind me of, of my own mom. Um, she would have been 105 years old uh, to, uh, for this Mother's Day. Uh, and I say that because it just lets you know that I'm not as young as you think I am. <laughs> My mom was born actually on April the 12th, 1912. And uh, that was the day that the Titanic sank. And we always gave her a hard time because we figured that that was a significant thing that she was born on the day that the Titanic sank. And it wasn't that she was like, you know, a, a figure of the Titanic, more the iceberg, you know. She was, she, was a pretty, she was a pretty tough lady, actually. But over the years, I've kind of discovered some things about my mom that I didn't know because I was, I mean, she had me when she was in her 40s, and, and uh, uh, my brothers were much older than I, and, and so uh, I got to read a lot of old, old clippings from uh, the newspaper, but especially from, from her high school experiences at Bowie High School. Do I have any bears here today? There we go. We got a couple of bears here. Yeah, okay. Well, she went to Bowie High School back in the 30s and happened to find some, some clippings of, of her. I found out that my mother was a writer and she was an actress uh, for the school plays, and, uh, and, and she was very good at what she did. I did not know that for many, many years. Uh, what I did know was that she had to drop out of high school at a, at, 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 near the end of her high school career. She had to drop out of school because uh, her mother, my grandmother, passed away. And my grandfather had already passed away, and she was the oldest, and so she had to take care of her two sisters and make sure that they you know, would get through school and all. So she took on a, a tremendous role as a, as a mother before she became a mother uh, for her two sisters. And uh, then, of course, she met my, my father and they were married. And I began to realize how profound uh, she was in, in, in the way that she uh, would write and uh, had beautiful penmanship, which I don't think people care much about anymore today, but she, she wrote some beautiful letters to my father when he was in the military in World War II, and, and he would write back, and he had some equally beautiful handwriting and beautiful thoughts that they would send each other. And uh, these are things I'm sharing only to say that uh, a day like today is, is a time that we remember some very important things about those that brought us up and raised us up and in, in troubled times and sometimes in good times and sometimes in bad times. But nonetheless, they were always there. And she was always there. So I have to say that mothers are very special people and they are for a number of reasons. But if we can commend them for anything, we can commend them for teaching us with faithful words of instruction. For example, mothers teach us to value a job well done when they say to their children, if you're going to kill each other, do it outside. I just finished cleaning. <laughs> I've noticed that moms can teach us about time travel when they say, if you don't straighten up, I'm going to knock you into the middle of next week. Moms also have a great way of teaching us logic. And I think this is probably the most logical thing that can ever be said by a mom. And I quote, because I said so, that's why. How many of you have heard your mom say that? Mom, why, why can't I do this or that? Because I said so, that's why. Now, see, that's, that's as logical as they can get. And moms are great also at teaching foresight. And I think most of us have probably heard this at one time or another. Make sure you wear clean underwear, honey, just in case you're in an accident. <laughs> right? Okay. 
Father, forgive me. Okay. Moms are, are not only philosophical and ethical, but amazingly scientific as well. In the area of philosophy and ethics, I mean, in teaching, let's say, irony, moms are known to say, keep crying and I'll give you something to cry about. <laughs> or in teaching about hypocrisy. If I told you once, I told you a million times, don't exaggerate. Okay. I'm glad some of you got that one. But they also teach us great scientific lessons like osmosis. I love this one. Shut your mouth and eat your supper. Osmosis. Okay. They teach us about stamina. You'll sit there until all that spinach, spinach is gone. <laughs> spinach, sorry. And they can teach us about weather too, like they say, this room of yours looks as if a tornado just went through it. You know. But of course, there is mom's lesson on the circle of life. I brought you into this world, and I can take you out. Okay. Enough about our moms. Because today, we are going to be introduced to a mother with a very serious issue in her life, complicated by the social and cultural taboos of Jesus' time. We meet her at a time when, when Jesus had left the Galilee and traveled to the coastal regions of Tyre and Sidon. I failed to mention earlier, and let me say it now, that uh, it's always a struggle for me on Mother's Day because usually I, I, I wrestle whether I need to continue on in what we're doing uh, expositionally in, in the Gospel of John, which is where we are usually on Sunday morning, uh, or have a message about moms or for moms. But this is a message for all of us because it's about one mom. And as I said, one facing a very serious issue in her life. And not in the Gospel of John, but in the Gospel of Mark, that I'd like you to turn to chapter 7 and read with me verses 24 to 30. From thence he arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon and entered into a house and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. For a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek or Gentile, a Syrophoenician by nation or nationality, and she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. But Jesus said unto her, let the children first be filled, for it is not meet or fit to take the children's bread and to cast it unto the dogs. And she answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And he said unto her, For this saying, <clears throat> excuse me, for this saying, Go thy way, the devil is gone out of thy daughter. And when she was come to her house, she, she found the devil gone out and her daughter laid upon the bed. The Lord's ministry in Galilee was drawing to a close at, in this account of Mark's gospel. And Mark records for us that Jesus left that region and headed west to the old Phoenician strongholds of Tyre and Sidon, cities with an illustrious renowned history, though very much pagan. The opposition was heating up in the Galilee with the appearance of the Pharisees from Jerusalem, and so Jesus sought some refuge and respite in the home of either a follower or an acquaintance. But what is significant to this account is that Jesus, in not wanting people to know his whereabouts, nonetheless could not hide. But I find that to be not only significant, but also encouraging. Encouraging that 
even though it would have been a time for him to rest and to get away from the throngs and the crowds and all, he himself knew that he could not be hid. And that's good for us to know. Because Jesus isn't hid from us today. He's very much with us. Even he said to us, before he ascended into heaven, he said, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the world, to the end of the age. He has sent us his Holy Spirit. He's with us. He's given us his word about him. He's with us. He can't be hid. And he couldn't be hid that day when this woman had this tremendous and traumatic situation. You see, Jesus had made a promise to those who would come to him. He said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me. Come to me if you have burdens, heavy burdens. If you're weighed down by the situations of life, if you're weighed down by sin and temptation, I'll give you rest. What a promise. That's the promise. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Word had certainly spread that Jesus healed the sick, that he raised the dead, that he delivered the demon-possessed, and made them all whole. It is in light of this that a certain unnamed woman appears. We're told in verse 25, for a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him. I want you to notice the progression that we're given here. She heard of him, she came, and she fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by nation or nationality. And she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. Now, first of all, we're told of this unnamed woman's dilemma. She had a little daughter. The text in the King James says a young daughter, but, but the word in the, in the, in the Greek uh, implies a little daughter pertaining to age. She was very young. And obviously, the enemy and his demons are no respecters of age. And whatever the mother had to deal with in this little daughter's attitude, in her appearance, in her behavior, was well beyond the normal approach by reason or by the rod. There was nothing that she could do to control this little daughter of hers. It was obvious to her, and probably to many others, that demon possession was the problem. And when having come to this particular place in her life, she grew desperate. Who wouldn't grow desperate in a time like this? Who wouldn't grow desperate with a situation of this magnitude? But her desperation led to her faith. The statement in verse 25 that she heard of Jesus that she came to Jesus, that she fell at the feet of Jesus, implies that this was done immediately. As soon as she heard, she came. As soon as she came, she fell at his feet. In other words, in her desperation, she sought Jesus out. She came to him, and she fell at at his feet with her request. How reminiscent of the centurion in Matthew chapter 8, the centurion that we know was Gentile, that we know because of his position more than likely was Roman. And yet when Jesus entered into Capernaum, as the text tells us, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, begging him, much like this woman, begging him 
and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof. But speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled, and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. He found great faith in a statement made by a Gentile, by a Roman, by a centurion, who said, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. In verse 13 of that same chapter, Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way. And as thou hast believed, notice, as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the very, in the selfsame hour, at that very moment that Jesus said, Go, as you have believed, it is done unto you. That very moment, the servant was healed. Now the question I have for you today is this. How did this centurion know to go to Jesus? Certainly in much the same way that the unnamed woman knew. She heard and then came. He heard and then came. The Apostle Paul stated in Romans chapter 10, in, in teaching this understanding of faith and the importance of faith in salvation, kind of a enter in through the back door kind of way that he does this, because he says in verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? So how shall those that, that call upon him, or how, how then shall they call upon him if they, if they haven't believed, if they're just unbelievers? But then he adds another layer to the understanding. He says, how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And then he adds another layer, and he says, how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things, quoting from the Old Testament. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah saith, Lord, who has believed our report? Then he makes this statement. He says, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing. How shall they know unless they hear? And how shall they hear unless a message is given? And how shall the message be given unless someone is sent? What, a, what an interesting progression, way to, 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 to bring us to this understanding for him to say, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And one thing that we need to remember in all of this is that Jesus is the word of God. He is the logos of God. So when they heard about Jesus and when they heard about what he had done and what he had said and in the authority by which he said these things, they came to him. This woman trusted and believed that the petition she brought to Jesus would, in fact, be fulfilled. Reminding us of that great biblical definition of faith, Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 
Would she, had a, would she have at any given time in, 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 the, in that situation where her daughter was demon-possessed by just sitting there have any hope that there would be any change in this daughter's life? But then she began to hear about the power of Christ, the power of Jesus in healing and in delivering and even in raising from the dead. To hear that he had come all the way out to the, to the coast of the Mediterranean where she lived and said, he is here in my own city, here in my own town. I've got to go to him. Perhaps she sought some refuge or some help from some, some priest or priestess from her own pagan religions and there was no help whatsoever. But Jesus, the talk was about this Jewish rabbi and he's now among us. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. She besought Jesus to deliver her daughter from a demon. Her hope was in Jesus. That's a good place for hope to be. And faith is the substance. Her hope in Jesus is a greater hope than people have in this world by what they hope for today. Because in the world we can hope for things and they may or may not come to pass. But with Jesus, you can hope in him and trust in him. And when you come to him, he answers. the evidence of things not seen. You don't see them when you ask, but when you see it afterwards, that evidence is because of faith and trust. Do you remember the Apostle Thomas who, when told of Jesus' resurrection in so many words that he would believe when he could see the scars and place his hands in the prints of Jesus' nails and in his side? In other words, he says, I'm not going to believe until I see. I won't believe until I see and touch and know that way. We're going to study this shortly in in John, one of these days, months, weeks, or years. John chapter 20. We're almost there. Yeah, right. We're still in chapter 12. John 20, though, in verses 26 to 29, notice what happens after... Thomas has actually said what he said. I won't believe until I can see and feel and touch. After eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Thomas was there. And then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst. That's to remind us that Jesus was now in his resurrected body, and he could do a lot of things now with his resurrected body that he didn't do before, even though he probably could anyway. But he appears in their midst and he said to them, Peace be unto you. And then saith he to Thomas, this whole meeting really seemed to focus upon this Thomas who said, I'm not going to believe until I see. And Jesus saith to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. You know, there are those who criticize the resurrection of Jesus or they criticize really, you know, uh, a lot of things of the scriptures today, even though they consider themselves theologians and all, who would say that what Thomas said was just an exclamation of, Oh my God, you know, that kind of thing. No, he was saying, My Lord, you are my Lord, you are my God. Now he knew. Remember that Paul said, even when we are faithless, he, Jesus, remains faithful. My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. You know who that is? That's you. 
If you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, that's you. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. You see, the one thing that we see taught by this unnamed mother, this unnamed Gentile mother, is that she had courage to believe. Her desperation led her to faith, but she had courage to believe. The plain reading of verse 26 of our text in in, in Mark, I'm sorry, in Mark uh, chapter 7, shows us that this woman already had three strikes against her. She had three strikes against her. She was a woman. You see, in the day and culture of Jesus' time, and not only in, 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 in the Jewish culture, but, but in the Middle Eastern culture for the most part. A woman was a non-person. So that's strike one. And then she was a Gentile. Here she's called a Greek, which literally means Gentile. In the Gospel of Matthew, we'll, we'll see in just a moment, she's called a Canaanite. Strike two. And then she's also called a Syrophoenician by nationality. The Phoenicians were the ones that came from the area of, of Greece and Crete, and then they, you know, they say they were the mariners that came and settled in the uh, in the coasts of uh, of uh, of the land of Canaan. But primarily, they were pagans and heathens. So that's strike three. Now, for some people, that would be enough for them to ignore this woman. For her to do what she did in approaching Jesus because of her daughter's condition was was done with great personal risk. Women just didn't do that in any of those cultures. She did what was much like the risk taken by the woman with the issue of blood who sought to touch, uh, to touch the hem of Jesus' garment to be made whole. That's back in Matthew chapter 9. But what she did, she did at great personal risk because she was, because of the issue of blood, a very unclean person. And they would have known this by the way that she avoided everybody, by the way that she would have dressed. And yet when she heard of Jesus, she worked her way through a crowd. She took great risk to to get to Jesus. Anybody from whatever position or or level of of religiosity that they may have had would have said, this woman is is touching us and, 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 and bringing her uncleanness upon us. It would, have got, it would have caused some great stir and taken her out, possibly even gotten rid of her, maybe even stoned her. Yet she pressed until she touched the hem of Jesus' garment, and the moment she did, she was made clean. Great personal risk. Courage to believe. Courage to follow through with our faith. Joseph of Arimathea displayed this same courage when we're told in Mark 15 that he went in boldly to Pontius Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus for burial. The phrase, he went in boldly, literally means he took courage to get to Pontius Pilate. In spite of what his own Sanhedrin or members of the Sanhedrin or or the Jewish council would have said, It took courage to get beyond the ridicule of those who would wonder why he would even want the body of Jesus. One thing is for sure, we can either be encouraged in knowing that nothing is impossible for the Lord, 
therefore we trust him. Or we can be discouraged by focusing so much more on the conditions and circumstances or situations that we may find ourselves in, rather than trusting the Lord with all of our heart and with all of our strength. And in that very statement that I just gave you, I used two words, encouraged and discouraged. You could either be encouraged or you can be discouraged. And by the way, within both of those words is found the word courage. You can either be encouraged to trust the Lord in all things, or you can be discouraged by just focusing on the problem and not on the one who can deliver you from the problem. This is the reason why Solomon's great statement in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 7 should stir in the hearts of every believer in Jesus Christ today. Because this is how we are to trust the Lord. This is how we are to live our lives as believers. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Notice, all thine heart. Not some of your heart, not most of your heart, but with all of your heart. Trust in the Lord. Believe in the Lord. Depend upon the Lord with all of your life. And lean not unto thine own understanding. We have a number of people today in the body of Christ that... that, uh, You know, they they theoretically trust in the Lord, but come down to leaning more on their own understanding than leaning upon the things of God. When we lean upon our own understanding, we begin to think that we can tell God, listen, Lord, I've I've devised a plan. I've worked this thing out. I'm ready to tell you, would you bless my plan? Because it's really good. By the way, in verse 7, as we'll get there in a moment, it says, Be not wise in thine own eyes. I thought we were trusting in the Lord. I thought we were going to listen to what he had to say, listen and read his word, and move upon the things that we're dealing with by trusting in him to lead us in his wisdom, to lead us in his truth. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. I know that some of you are sports fans, and sometimes you, you kind of get excited when you hear somebody after a big game, you know, and they interview all the people that win, you know, or whatever. And they always, you know, there'll be a, a person or two that actually have the courage to say, I want to thank the Lord, Jesus Christ, for, you know, giving me wisdom, giving me strength uh, for this game and, and, and all. Now, what they don't say is, I thank the Lord for just guiding that ball into my hand when I scored the winning touchdown. Or, I, you know, I, when I shot that 70-foot jumper to win the game on the last second, you know, that God just guided that ball right into the basket. Or, or the golfer who says, you know, I just putted a 150-foot a, a putt, you know, you know the, to, to win this great tournament. You know, I just thank the Lord for guiding that ball right into the hole. That's not what they're saying. I know that some people say it and maybe they believe it or maybe they don't. The point of the matter is that those who say what they say, in this particular case, are saying it to acknowledge him. Simple. But the fact is you don't have to be a great uh, professional athlete to do that. I mean, you can be whatever you are in this place today. I mean, you can be a, a... restaurant owner, you can be an attorney, you can be a banker, you can be a, 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 a work at a car wash, work at McDonald's, whatever it is. But do you acknowledge him in all your ways? That is exactly what is being said. In all thy ways acknowledge him. Give thanks to him for what it is that you do. Give thanks to him that he's given you a job. Give thanks to him that he has given you an opportunity to feed your family, to do the things that you need to do for them. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he shall direct your paths. I think we need to acknowledge him more and more in the things that we do. And then he says, be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. By the way, that fearing of the Lord is really just focusing our attention on worshiping the Lord, being reverent to the Lord, being respectful to the Lord, honoring the Lord in all that we do. And when we gather together, as we did today, 
to worship him with all of our heart, to praise him for the wondrous things that he's done. Did you praise him this morning because you got up and you were breathing? Praise God for that. I'd be, I'd be having a problem if you were here and you weren't breathing. Have we given him thanks for the sustenance that we had this morning to come, to be alive and to be awake and to be here to honor him? Have we thanked him? And then, of course, he says, fear the Lord, worship the Lord, depart from evil. Whatever it is that we ought not to be doing, let's not do it. Let's do what is right. Let's do what honors God. What I'm saying in all of this is it takes courage. It takes godly courage to follow after Jesus Christ. It takes godly courage to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of us are familiar with the statement that Jesus makes in Luke 9, verses 23 and 24, when he says, And he said unto them, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. What is Jesus saying? He says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. And if we come after him, it takes courage to come after Jesus. It takes courage to deny ourselves. It takes courage, godly courage, to take up our cross daily. Why? Because taking up the cross is saying, I'm dying to myself and I'm living unto God. And I'm living unto Christ. It takes courage to follow Jesus every day of our lives. Why? Because the world, the flesh, and the enemy are doing everything they can to disrupt your walk, to disrupt the way that you're going, to derail you from going in the way of the cross and of the way of the Lord and the way of heaven. And in fact, the derailment is derailing you from following Jesus because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one cometh unto the Father except by me. It takes courage, godly courage. To the Corinthian church, at the end of his first letter, Paul, in closing this letter, says to them in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, he says, watch ye. In other words, be aware. Be alert. Be awake, watch, stand fast in the faith. In other words, be immovable in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be immovable. And then he says this, quit you like men. Now I know that in some translations they say be, be brave. But, but uh, the, the King James translators use this phrase, quit you like men. Literally, it means be of good courage. You see, men in the world today may have this appearance of being strong and masculine and, and tough. Acting as if they have nothing to fear in this life. But many of them do what they do because they do fear. But they don't want their fear to show. Their fear of the unknown. Their fear of death. Their fear of what comes after death. But to the believer in Jesus Christ, what do we have to fear? We have nothing to fear. Why? Because we belong to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We belong to Jesus Christ. We no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to the one who died for us and gave himself for us. We're concerned about death. If we fear death at all, folks, as believers, if we fear death at all, we fear someone that we love dearly dying without Christ. That's our fear of death. We fear that someone we know 
someone we have shared with, someone we have loved, someone we have told about Jesus is stubborn enough to stay away from, from the Lord. And our fear is that they will die without Christ. It takes courage to believe in Jesus. But lastly, this unnamed woman, this unnamed mother, she also taught us the courage to be humble. The courage to be humble. If you go back to Mark 7, look at verses 27 and 28. Remember now that she has come and and fell at the feet of Jesus, and she besought him, at the, this is the end of two, verse 26, she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. But Jesus said unto her, Let the children first be filled, for it is not meat or fit to take the, chi- the children's bread and to cast it unto the dogs. And she answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. Now, The desperation that led this woman to trust in the Lord Jesus and the courage to pursue him as she did led to her show of great humility. Falling, first of all, at Jesus' feet. But it became a greater challenge to her faith when Jesus apparently showed hardness toward her. Because what isn't described in our text outright was Jesus' heart being deeply moved by her plight, deeply moved by her trouble in her situation. But the hardness was just a test. May I say, it was a test more for, her, for his disciples than for her. And, and the Lord did that a lot with his disciples. He was always testing them. But it was a test for her nonetheless to be a test for her, for, I should say, for his disciples. So what was Jesus saying in this statement? Let the children first be filled, for it is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it unto the dogs. Jesus was making clear what his greater mission was. Now, the way we know that is we need to look at the the comparable passage uh, of this uh, event in Matthew chapter 15. So I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15 and look at verses 21 through 25. Because what we find here is that the gospel writers complemented each other. They, They looked at things from different perspectives, but it was the same thing that happened. They never contradicted each other. They always complemented each other. And we see that in this particular uh, situation. Matthew fills in a lot of gaps that we've already seen in the, in the, math, uh, I'm sorry, in the Mark account, Mark 7. Matthew writes the gospel for the Jewish or Hebrew mindset. Mark does not. Mark writes his gospel more for the Gentile or Roman mindset. So you'll understand. So now in Matthew 15, verse 21, it says, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, just as Mark recorded. But then it says in verse 22, And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coasts. That was more of a generalized statement because we have the the more specific statement in Mark that says she was a Greek, which was a Gentile, and she was a Syrophoenician woman as nationality as well as religious uh, or religious connotation by the way so behold a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and by the way being a Canaanite would also mean that she was probably a pagan to begin with and cried unto him saying now this is something that Matthew records because again he's he's he heard it he was there Matthew was there and this was to the Jewish uh, Hebrew mindset again She cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. 
You'll notice that Mark only records that she besought Jesus that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. But Matthew fills in what she said. And she calls him Lord. And she calls him the son of David. So she is going deeply into the heart and mind of Jesus. I know who you are. I've heard of you. And because I've heard of you, I've come to you. And I've come to you and I've fallen at your feet. And this is my request. But notice in verse 23, he answered her not a word. Now, that's filling in the gap of time. Jesus answered her not a word, and his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. Literally what they were saying is, Oh, Lord, just send her away. Even, you know, even give her what she wants, and let's, just let her go away, because she's making too much noise behind us. She keeps just yelling at you. They were bothered by her. Now he answers. Notice what Jesus said. I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Now we get a little better picture of what Jesus was saying when he said to her, let the children first be filled. The children was the house of Israel. Let the children first be filled, for it is not fit to take the children's bread, that which is given to them, and to cast, uh, uh, and, and to cast it unto the dogs. The Gentiles. You see, the blessings were always first for Israel and then for the Gentiles. That's the way God wanted it for a reason. The blessing was to the Jews first. I mean, let's face it, this is what Paul himself said in Romans chapter 1. When he said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. The blessings were always for Israel first, and then for the Gentiles. And so it is believed that it was inappropriate, inappropriate to bless the Gentiles before the Jews. And then if things appeared bad enough here by what Jesus said, Jesus actually then calls this woman in a roundabout way a dog. Because that's what they call the Gentiles. But don't get upset yet. Don't throw anything at me. Just listen carefully. When you examine the text in the original language, you realize that Jesus didn't call her a wild dog because there's a name for that. In the Greek, dog that was just a wild, on-the-street dog that was a scavenger looking for food for himself. No, he didn't use that word. He used a word for a puppy. For a puppy that was a family pet. It's clear in the text, isn't it? The children first be filled, for it is not meet to take the children's bread, to cast it unto the dogs. And she answered and said, Yes, Lord, yet, under the, yet the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. The dog's inside dog. I know that some of you have inside dogs and outside dogs. This was an inside dog. <laughs> A domesticated puppy. A puppy that was loved and played with and all. But you see, the woman's answer is classic. Because she refused. She refused to be sidetracked by taking offense at being called a dog. I mean, what was her first statement to Jesus after he said that? She said, yes, Lord. I mean, she's acknowledging it. Yes, Lord. Yet, 
the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. She accepted the title in humility, but responds with a statement that became Jesus' teaching moment for his disciples. I mean, he took hold of what she said. Yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. What he said was for the ears, not only of the woman, but for his disciples. He said, for this saying, go thy way. The devil is gone out of thy daughter. He wasn't in her house. She came to him. This was another time that Jesus spoke the word and someone was healed from a distance. Maybe not as far of a distance as others were healed, but she was healed and delivered. But the point of all of this is that How many of us sometimes get insulted if somebody says something to us? You know, we get so caught up in all of this political correctness, you know, nowadays. And somebody says something to somebody and they say, Oh, I'm just so offended, I'm so offended, I'm so offended. Maybe somebody does say something that's pretty bad. But what are we to do? ask you this question. Who, after apparently being insulted, would have just gotten up and left without the blessing? Oh, he called me a dog? Well, I'm out of here. Really? Man, that goes a lot. That goes around a lot even today. I don't like this, I don't like that. You know, they, I mean, people are, people leave churches today for lesser reasons. I mean, it's even been known that, you know, in some churches that do what we did, you know, put, we put some rock on the wall, you know, kind of clean, you know, fix, fix up the place here. Got this pulpit. Oh, look at that pulpit. Oh, look at that wall. We're out of here. Oh, they moved the table from the front over to the back over there. Oh, my goodness, they're heathens now. That's crazy. Listen, this woman had a problem. She wasn't going to let go. Jesus knew that. This woman's daughter was in serious trouble. She knew there could only be one answer. She knew that there could only be one solution. So what did she do? She she seeks out Jesus. She stays with Jesus. And she's stuck with Jesus. How many of us do that today? Are you seeking out the Lord? Because you know that there is no answer anywhere else but with Him. Are you staying with him no matter what comes out about you? No matter what might be said or, or, or thought or done? Are you going to stick with him? Because he's the only one that matters when it comes to sticking with anyone. Will you stick with Jesus? Do we know the power of Christ's love for us? Do we know the power of Christ's love? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Do we know the power of God's love for us? And the power of Christ's love for us? Do we know the power of his might on our behalf? What he did for us in taking our place on the cross? Do we know what that means today in our lives? Does it make us realize how worthy he is of our praise, of our worship, of our surrender to him? I can tell you this, I know from the scriptures that Peter understood this. He came to realize who Jesus was. Now you might think, I'm going to go to John, uh, back when, after Jesus' resurrection, where, 
where you know he he prepares breakfast on the, at the you know uh, on, on the shores of the Galilee for his disciples who went out fishing and then they come back in and and there Jesus takes Peter aside Peter remember was fully ashamed of himself for having denied the Lord three times carried that shame with him all through this time after Jesus resurrection so Jesus takes him aside and we know the account I'm not going there by the way but we know the account where Jesus says three times to Peter asks him three questions very similar questions do you love me we're not going there but just want to remind you. No, I want to take you a little earlier in Peter's life with Jesus. Go to Luke chapter 5. Because Luke, because Luke records something about Peter here that should stimulate our hearts about the love that we are to have for who Jesus is. Jesus was preaching the gospel from the boats because the people had crowded all along the shores so much to hear him that he, he was kind of pushed back, back into the, the water. They got in one of the boats and he preached. And we're told in verse 4, now when he had left speaking, when he stopped speaking, he, he said to Simon, they're in the boat, right? So he says to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draft. In other words, let's go fishing. Church is over now, let's go fishing. And Simon answering said unto him, you have to understand something now. Peter was a fisherman. His boat probably had, you know, his license right on the front there, you know. He says, I am a fisherman, professional. Took the meter because Jesus said, let's go fishing. So he got the meter started on the boat. And off they go, the fish. So with this in mind, Peter says, Master, I, I could almost see Peter. Oh, master. Oh, come on. We've toiled all night. <clears throat> We're the professionals here. <clears throat> We've toiled all night and have taken nothing. It happens that way, you know, for even professional fishermen. We toiled all night. You know, we have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. Okay, because you said so, Lord, I'll, I'll make you feel happy. Here goes the nets. Throw the nets in the waters, guys. Got to prove to Jesus there's no fish out there today. All right? So notice what happens. When they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fish, and their net brake. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. That's a lot of fish. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. In the boat, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Did he not recognize the power of Christ? Did he not recognize the power of the Messiah of Israel who was now in his boat? What did it do to him? It humbled him. But I have to tell you, it takes courage to be humbled that way. Peter was not only humbled, but he experienced deep humiliation in the presence of the Messiah of Israel, God's Son. That's who he realized Jesus was. My question to you this morning is, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Have you come to him as did the unnamed woman with the demon-possessed daughter? Have you come to him knowing his power, knowing the extent of his love for you? By the way, getting back to the woman and her demon-possessed daughter, in Mark 7, verses 29 and 30, we're told that Jesus said to her, For this saying, go thy way, for what she said. In faith, 
and encourage. Go thy way, the devil has gone out of thy daughter. And when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out and her daughter lay upon the bed. The picture was of resting. She was now resting. She was no longer possessed by this demon. This little girl was resting like a little girl should. The lesson from the unnamed Gentile mother is for all of us here today. Let's not forget the richness of her example by the words given to us in James 4, verse 10. We'll close with this. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Moms, I want to tell you how precious you are to God. Because if we've learned anything about our own mothers, no matter what they went through in life, no matter what they had to deal with, there was always an example of humility. Somewhere, at some time. I can rest assured in saying that those of you that are moms here today have exhibited that same courage, that same humility, that same desperate love for your family. We've prayed for so many of you when your children were sick. Prayed for so many of you when you would tell us of your losses and would accompany you in those losses. And yet we see God's strength continue to remain in your life. We thank you, moms. And we want to pray for you this morning. So before we dismiss, I'd like to have you moms stand up. If you're a mother today, maybe you're going to be a mother for the first time. If, if, if you are and you haven't given birth yet, you know what? You're still a mom. You're still a mom. You have God's life, or your child's life inside of you that God gave you. You're a mom. You're being a mom right now. You stand up. Those of you that are close by, husbands or children or friends, whoever, let's just lay hands on them very quickly. We're going to pray for them. Our Father and our God, how thankful we are for these moms that are here today. Lord, if we were to gather all of the experiences that they have had and that they have struggled through, that they have seen your victories in, Lord, we could be here for many days hearing, crying, rejoicing, and crying again. We're thankful, Lord, for them. We're thankful for their devotion to you. We're thankful for their devotion to their family, to their children. We know, Lord God, that it hasn't been easy. It hasn't been easy, and it never will be in this life. We know that they've gone through all kinds of emotions. But here they are today, and we are so thankful to pray for them and to lift them up to you. And I pray, Father, that even with the burdens that they, have may, they may have brought into this place today, may they lay them at your feet. May they come from seeking you to staying with you and sticking to you. For indeed, Lord, you will stick to them in your great love. Provide them a wonderful day, but not just today. Every day we are to honor them and thank you for them. May we do that for our moms today. In Jesus' name.
Amen and amen. Thank you, moms. We love you. Now, don't, don't sit down, moms, because I'm going to ask everybody else to stand with you so we can dismiss. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom, give you peace. Have a wonderful day in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. You guys and, and, and family, take your moms out. Bless them. If you're going to cook out for them, be safe. Don't blow up the house. You know, don't burn up the yard, whatever. Have a good time. Uh, love them. And, uh, and just thank God for them. Thank the Lord for them. Don't ever forget what they mean to us all of us. And if you need prayer, uh, you can come up here to the front and uh, somebody will, will pray with you. I, I failed to mention in, in this uh, particular service that one of the things that people change because they don't, they don't want to be insulted by certain words is that uh, certain people have changed the, the words to amazing grace. To say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves someone like me, when in fact the word is to save a wretch like me. I'm not insulted by that because I know that that's what I was before I came to Jesus. So when I hear that, I think, no, you're, you're, you're missing the point. John Newton, when he wrote the words to amazing grace, knew exactly what he was doing. He knew because he was a wretch. We know what we've been saved from. It's just a reminder to stay now following after the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he's done for us. And so let's close with amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. When we've been there, Ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Let's sing Amazing Grace again. Amazing.